Welcome to the Sydney Ideas International Public Lecture Series at the University of Sydney. I'm Meredith Hall, Program Manager for Sydney Ideas. I'm very pleased to welcome Professor Suri Makdisi to the University of Sydney tonight. Professor Makdisi is in Australia as a guest of the University of Adelaide for their annual Edward Said Memorial Lecture. This is the fourth speaker from the Memorial Lecture Series we have hosted. And I would like to thank Professor Basim Daly at Adelaide and the Coalition for Justice and Peace in Palestine for working with Sydney Ideas once again to present tonight's lecture. The lecture tonight will run for 50 minutes and will be followed by a 30-minute question and answer session. We have two microphones set up in the bottom of the aisles for you to ask your questions. Please do use the microphones for your questions. The lecture is being recorded tonight for ABC's multi-platform talks program, ABC Fora, so they are filming it for broadcast, so please do use the microphones for your questions. After the lecture, uh, Professor Makdisi will be signing his book in the foyer at the Glee Book Stand. The next Sydney IDs lecture will be next Tuesday, the 29th of September, when we present Dr Michael Wesley, Executive Director of the Lowy Institute for International Policy, on Getting China Right, a call for a fundamental re-examination of Australia's relationship with China at all levels. And we have just confirmed details of a Sydney Ideas Intelligence Squared Australia co-presentation on the 10th of November in the Great Hall. The motion, Too Many People Go to University, will be debated by a panel of experts, including the Vice-Chancellor of the University of Sydney, Dr Michael Spence. But for tonight, I'm now very pleased to welcome Anthony Lowenstein, a Sydney-based journalist, blogger and author of two books, My Israel Question and The Blogging Revolution, who will introduce Sari Makdisi and his work to you. Thank you. Thank you all very much for coming. During the interview with the Boston Globe in 2008, during the release of his book, Palestine Inside Out, An Everyday Occupation, Sari Makdisi argued the following, and I quote, there is a prevailing orthodoxy that in general Israel is the aggrieved party and the Palestinians are the aggressors, whereas it seems to me that the situation is exactly the opposite. Half of Palestine's people were forced from their homes during the creation of Israel in 1948. They've never been allowed to return, although they have the legal and moral right to do so. Instead, we see the continuing existence of a system that keeps people displaced and unable to exercise their full human rights, end quote. This perversion of language for the Professor of English Literature at the University of California is central to his thesis. Our mainstream media constantly frames the Middle East conflict as between two equal sides, two aggrieved parties and two victims. The Jews of Europe, including my own family, were butchered in the name of fundamentalism during the Holocaust, but the Palestinians have been paying a high price ever since for Hitler's crimes. In my view, the Palestinians have become in some ways the new Jews, and occupation has become a modern Zionist trait. During my recent visit to Israel, the West Bank and Gaza, I saw the creeping apartheid discussed by Makdisi in his copious public writings and recent book. It's often mundane, hidden, yet devastating. I witnessed Messianic Jews set fire to Palestinian fields in the occupied West Bank while Israeli troops stood and watched. I observed vicious racism in Jerusalem by protesting Jewish settlers against the Negro, Barack Obama, and Arabs. 
I spoke to Gazans suffering under an Israeli and Egyptian imposed siege. The effects of the December-January war still fresh in their lives, whole neighbourhoods flattened. Last week's UN report on Gaza, compiled by the distinguished South African Jewish judge Richard Goldstone, marked a turning point, in my view, for the simple fact that it correctly claimed that, quote, while the Israeli government has sought to portray its operations as essentially a response to rocket attacks in the exercises of its right to self-defence, the UN mission considers the plan to have been directed, at least in part, at a different target, the people of Gaza as a whole, end quote. Whether the international community allows Israel to literally get away with murder is now the key question. MacDesi's message, eloquently explained in his Edward Said memorial lecture presented last weekend in Adelaide, is that tired slogans no longer suffice. And ideas that were once on the fringes are now gaining mainstream acceptance. Decades of Zionist exceptionalism, global Holocaust guilt, colonial expansion and violence has definitely seen to that. The following is a short extract from MacDesi's Sayyid presentation, articulating the logical and only democratic answer to the conflict that I share with him. And I quote, There is no question that committed Zionists from across the political spectrum will resist the move towards the one-state solution in the way that privileged groups have always historically resisted the erosion of their privileges. This resistance, even the violent resistance, of privileged groups do not stop, did not stop South Africa from abandoning apartheid the United States from abandoning Jim Crow laws or the institution of slavery itself, or, for that matter, the British aristocracy from relinquishing its privileges in the great reform bills of the 19th century. And so it is with those who seek to protect the privileges of the Israeli Jewish community in Israel-Palestine today, who know perfectly well that they are running out of time and that the world will not, or at least should not, tolerate the kinds of discrimination practiced in Israel and the occupied territories for much longer, end quote. MacDissey correctly, in my view, uses the term apartheid to describe a situation in the occupied territories. It's not just accurate, but essential, if one is to honestly reveal the racially exclusionary regime implemented there, backed, one must say, by the US, the EU, and our own fine Australian government of both political major stripes. The only logical answer, as MacDesi constantly reiterates, is a global boycott, divestment and sanction campaign against Israel until it accepts the basic tenets of international law and ends the occupation. The last six months alone since the Gaza war have seen great strides in this movement. Last week, the leading US Jewish newspaper, The Forward, had an article headlined, Palestinian-led movement to boycott Israel is gaining support. As Omar Baghouti, a Palestinian leader of this BDS campaign, told the publication, and I quote, our South Africa moment has finally arrived. Any university, institution, cultural ambassador, filmmaker or individual trying to normalise relations with occupying Israel will be targeted. Nonviolently, of course. The power of MacDesi's writings is not just because he is a Palestinian and articulates a narrative the Western world has spent so long to suppress and deny, but because he reveals the largely hidden realities of the Middle East client state, drunk on its own arrogance and seeming invincibility. It is the job of Jews, Arabs, Palestinians, Christians and human rights activists everywhere, including in Australia, to no longer tolerate the superficially appealing victimhood of modern Zionism. Jewish historian Tony Jutt wrote in 2006 on Israel's 58th birthday that the country was curiously immature and, quote, consumed by a brittle confidence in its own uniqueness, 
certain that no one understands it and everyone is against it, and full of wounded self-esteem, quick to take offence and quick to give it, end quote. The situation is even graver in 2009, with an Israeli Prime Minister who has never truly accepted legitimacy of the Palestinian people and a US President, Barack Obama, who thrives on making pretty speeches with virtually nothing to show for it, a magician whose bag of tricks convinces only the most devoted or deluded. Despite months of public debate, the occupation in the West Bank has only deepened since Obama's inauguration. American Jewish intellectual and blogger Joseph Dana wrote recently that, quote, contemporary Jewish identity has been constructed around two opposites which cannot function without each other, the Holocaust and the State of Israel, end quote. This incestuous relationship has allowed the Palestinians to be demonized as the cause of Jewish suffering rather than the victims of post-Holocaust Jewish militarism. It takes both Jews and Palestinians to challenge this equation, and Magdisi is leading the conversation around the world. Let me close with Magdisi in the Huffington Post in July, signalling the inherent contradiction of modern Zionism, and I quote, Israel today is no more Jewish than America is white or Christian. The big difference, though, is that, whereas America, for the most part, embraces its own multiculturalism, Israel still desperately wants to be Jewish. Its absurd demand to be recognised as such, no other state goes around impetuously demanding that others accept its own sense of its national character, is an expression of its own profound insecurity. Not its military insecurity, the only serious military threat Israel faces on its own territory is imaginary, but rather its anxious awareness of its status as a botched and hence forever incomplete settler colonial enterprise. Unlike Australia, there were too many Aboriginals left standing when the smoke cleared over the ruins of Palestine in 1948. And to this day, the Palestinians have simply refused to give up, go away, or somehow annul themselves, end quote. So I stand before you as a Jew who turns in shame at what my people have been doing in supporting a state with leaders who boast of imprisoning, killing and blocking another people. I'm honoured tonight to introduce Sari Makdisi, a man with both peace and justice on his mind. Thank you. Thank you, Anthony, for those very kind words and Meredith and... Uh, the University of Sydney and Sydney Ideas, and of course all of you for, for braving the elements and coming to hear me tonight. It was a glorious afternoon in May 2004, and the advocates, planners, and backers of the newly launched Museum of Tolerance in Jerusalem could not have asked for a more auspicious groundbreaking ceremony. Dozens of important guests were in attendance to mark the realization of the project by the Los Angeles-based Simon Wiesenthal Center, including the building's world-renowned architect, Frank Gehry, the dean of the Wiesenthal Center, Rabbi Marvin Heyer, the Israeli president, Moshe Katsav, and the governor of California, Arnold Schwarzenegger, the big guy in the middle of the picture there. In, in the darkness that pervades the Middle East, proclaimed the governor in the ceremony's keynote address, this building will be a candle to guide us. Schwarzenegger's words spoke to the museum's lofty proclamations about itself. The complex aims to offer, according to Rabbi Heyer, and I quote, a great landmark promoting the principles of mutual respect and responsibility. Uh, sorry, social responsibility. The museum's marketing literature says that in the face of 
quote, a rising crescendo of ethnic tensions, civilizational clashes, and the use of religious justification for acts of terror, it intends to provide a unique institution that will focus on issues of human dignity and responsibility. It all sounds very nice, but following the groundbreaking ceremony, although everything seemed to be going well initially for the development of the Museum of Tolerance in Jerusalem, including fundraising towards the $200 million cost from philanthropists in the U.S., a legal challenge was presented to the, to the High Court in Israel in February 2006, which led to the suspension of construction. Workers excavating the site had come across human remains and were quietly removing them until news leaked to the local media, which broke the story, precipitating a major crisis. The site for the Museum of Tolerance, it turns out, includes a cemetery. In fact, one of the most important Muslim cemeteries in all of Palestine, which had been in continual use for hundreds of years from the time of the Crusades until the uprooting of, 19, of Palestine in 1948. It contained the graves of family members of living Palestinians, including people I know personally. Palestinian and Muslim individuals and organizations had been pointing this out and warning of the consequences from the time the museum project was announced. But, of course, they were ignored all along until news broke that excavators were actually removing bodies and then hurriedly and improperly trying to dispose of them. What followed is one of the most remarkable and surely one of the most profoundly indicative episodes in the entire conflict between Israel and the Palestinians. The project leaders refused to consider any alteration in the museum plan following its encounter with the cemetery that had been in active use until 1948 and was, as I said, still being visited by family members of those buried there. Rabbi Heyer, the directors of the Wiesenthal Center in L.A., and the museum's backers in Israel were adamant that the project would go ahead as planned on the original site, cemetery or no cemetery. They could not see what all the fuss was about. Palestinians and Muslims, on the other hand, were asking how, in all seriousness, a museum of tolerance claiming to represent mutual respect and human dignity could be built on top of a dispossessed people's graveyard, and how such a thing could happen a mere stone's throw from militarily occupied and contested territory close to by far the most impressive material manifestation of the Israeli occupation of Palestine, the oppressive concrete slabs of the separation wall that Israel has built on, in, and around the West Bank and East Jerusalem, which, as you'll see in a moment, the curving titanium-clad slabs of Gary's design for the museum seem to consciously call forth an echo across the old city. The Ma'manallah Cemetery, otherwise known as Mamilla, lies just to the west of the old city of Jerusalem, close to Yaffa Gate. Covering about 50 acres by the early 20th century, it is estimated to have been established in the 7th century and to contain the remains of companions of the Prophet Muhammad as well as warriors of Salah ad-Din's army. Ma'manallah fell to the Zionist militias that would coalesce into the Israeli army during the uprooting of Palestine in 1948. So did most of the rest of Jerusalem. Multicultural, multi-confessional Palestine was deliberately uprooted in order to clear the space for the creation of a state with an exclusively Jewish identity to be populated, that is, once most of the Muslim and Christian Palestinians had been driven away, largely by newly arrived European Jewish colonists and settlers. The lands, homes, livestock, furniture, personal effects, clothes, dishes, heirlooms, papers, books, photographs, and all the other personal possessions of the Palestinians driven from their homes 
and expelled beyond the borders of what would become the state of Israel and blocked from returning after the fighting ended and ever since, were confiscated by the agencies of the Jewish state and eventually transferred to the newly created custodian of absentee property to be distributed to new Jewish owners. What befell the rest of, the pa of Palestine was also the fate of the cemetery and the other properties of the Waqf, which is the Islamic foundation for, in, in Palestine, which were transferred, all of them, to the custodian of absentee property and placed under Israeli control. They remain under state control or under the control of national agencies such as the Jewish National Fund to this day. At first, Israeli authorities and state planners respected the delineations of the cemetery that had been firmly established by the time of Ottoman rule in Palestine. Ma'man Allah's protected status started to erode, however, in the late 1950s and early 1960s, a time when the Palestinian citizens of Israel were subject to martial law and were hence ill-equipped to protest. First, a road was paved through the cemetery to connect two neighboring streets. Then, in 1960, a parking lot was built on a small part of the cemetery, a project given the approval of the director of an Israeli-appointed Muslim official who was subsequently arrested and removed from office because of corruption. In the 1980s, the Ministry of Transport established another parking lot on a different section of the cemetery. Further excavation was involved, as it was also during the installation of sewage lines nearby. Dozens of graves were destroyed during all of these excavations and human remains removed and scattered. Eventually, the custodian of absentee property transferred the cemetery to the Jerusalem municipality. The Palestinian Muslim community and religious institutions protested that transfer, but to no avail. In the same year, city officials established Israel's Independence Park on a large section of the cemetery, a fact that I think requires a little bit of commentary, but it's interesting to think about having an independence park on a cemetery. The construction for that project involved the excavation of graves and human remains and the planting of trees and shrubs. Crumbling tombstones can still see, be seen between the trees of Israel's independence park. Today, independence park embodies and expresses Israel's uneasy attitude towards the Palestinians, an unstable and indeed explosive mixture of acknowledgement, repression, denial, erasure, and resentment that, despite all the denial and repression, Palestinians still exist and refuse simply to disappear. The sense of incompletion captured in the park also conveys the difference between Israel and other more successful settler colonial projects. In this case, the removal or eradication of the indigenous population to make room for the incoming settler population was not completed successfully. Palestinians comprise 20% of the population of Israel within its pre-67 borders, and about half the total population of the territories over which Israel rules. The sheer persistence of the Palestinian presence represents a threat to Israel's claim to an exclusively Jewish identity. How can a state claim to have one identity when such a large proportion, 50%, of the people over whom it rules have another identity? Even leaving aside the occupied territories, how can Israel claim to be both a Jewish and a democratic state? How can a sense of Jewish homeliness, a sense of home, be secured when there is a competing Palestinian narrative of home attached to the very same land? These are the conundrums to which Zionists from across the political spectrum keep having to return. Even the countless Israeli individuals and organizations like Machsom Watch or Zohrot or Ta'ayush or others who, faithful, who favor peaceful coexistence with the Palestinians and have done so much to contest the violence imposed by Jewish colonists and the Israeli army 
on Palestinians in the occupied territories have to reckon with this existential question. How can the Jewish identity of the state be maintained without continuing to override or simply to negate the unyielding Palestinian claim to home inside what is today Israel, to Haifa, to Yaffa, to Akka, and so forth? How, in short, can Zionism, as an exclusive form of nationalism, be reconciled with Palestinian rights, including, above all, the rightful Palestinian claim to land and home inside what is today Israel, to equal rights in the state, and to the right of return to those homes in that land of those who were wrongfully expelled in 1948? Even from the standpoint of Israelis who favor coexistence with the Palestinians, there is no easy answer to those questions. Indeed, there may not be an answer at all. As Ghassan Hajj points out, a nationalist discourse of homeliness clearly implies not only an image of nation that is one's own, but also of a self that occupies a privileged relation vis-a-vis that nation, a privileged mode of inhabiting it. This is, Hajj adds, evident in the way in which the nationalist treats the other who is present in the space conceived as the national home as an object to be managed or removed in order to secure the homely space while treating the self as spatially empowered to position or remove the other. In the case of Israel, the attempt to secure a sense of Jewish national homeliness involves an endless process of covering over, removing, or managing a stubbornly persistent Palestinian presence. Sometimes this is done physically, for example, as we see in this video clip, by using massive force, riot police, tear gas, and so forth, to break up peaceful protests by the Palestinian minority inside Israel asserting their national identity, which are often received by the Israeli police with, as I said, brutal force because they're not supposed to have a national identity inside the state. Sometimes it's done by by the state officially refusing to recognize the existence of dozens of Palestinian villages inside Israel, which pre-exist the state, and hence denying their population state services and cutting them off from state infrastructure, telephones and water supply, and so forth. And sometimes the Israeli attempt to cover over or deny the Palestinian presence inside Israel is done rhetorically, for example, by denying that Palestinians exist. There is no such thing as a Palestinian, Golda Meir once famously said, or by trying to wish them away by referring to them by using the generically deracinated term Israeli Arabs rather than the national term Palestinians, which they use themselves, or by seeking, as is happening today, in a kind of legal corollary to what you're seeing on the screen, to make it illegal for a Palestinian to commemorate the Nakba, or catastrophe of 1948. This extraordinary attempt at historical repression is being packaged in a bill currently making its way through the Israeli parliament with strong government support. Every time Zionists seem to have resolved matters to their satisfaction, whether through repression, denial, or outright violence, Palestinians remind them that they still exist, that they still haven't gone away, that the would-be Jewish state is still not exclusively Jewish, that despite everything, a Jewish sense of homeliness has still not been fully consolidated in what had been, and for Palestinians will always remain, Palestine. This is precisely the source of resentment tapped into by the far right in Israel, most recently by the spectacularly successful leadership of the current foreign minister, Avigdor Lieberman, and his tellingly named party, Israel Beituna, or Israel is our home, which wants to remove the remaining Palestinians from within Israel 
and, as the Israeli historian Benny Morris puts it, to complete the job of 1948. It is also the source of recurring anxiety for most of the rest of the Israeli political spectrum, which, while it too openly speaks of the demographic problem posed by Palestinians inside the state, would rather go on dealing with that problem by further and ever more elaborate mechanisms of denial, repression, or foreclosure, rather than outright expulsion. This latter position, the much more convoluted one than the one represented by Lieberman, gives rise to the strand of Zionism from which the Museum of Tolerance project would emerge, as I'll explain in detail in a minute. But if Israel's Independence Park expresses the current unsettled state of Israeli attitudes towards Palestinians, the museum project, among other things, aims to resolve these tensions and contradictions by removing the last remaining traces of dissonance and by symbolically purifying the site once and for all, to secure a sense of Jewish homeliness by completely erasing the traces of the Palestinian other. It was in February 2004 that the local media reported that the Israeli government and the municipality of Jerusalem had approved the construction of the Museum of Tolerance on what remains of Man Cemetery. Protests from Palestinians and Muslims went unheeded, and the groundbreaking ceremony was held in May of that year. Protests were stepped up when the actual excavations began in September. After news broke that human remains were being disinterred in February 2006, the case was taken to Israel's high court, which issued temporary orders halting construction in the spring of 2006 and appointed an arbitration panel. On the 29th of October 2008, the high court gave its final go-ahead to the construction project, thereby bringing to an end all legal attempts to stop the project. Moderation and tolerance have prevailed, declared Rabbi Heyer of the Wiesenthal Center. From this, quoting him now, from this half-century parking lot in the center of West Jerusalem will rise an institution that offers hope and reason to all the people of Israel and the world. There will, he added, be protests for two or three days, but then things will go back to normal. Palestinians and Muslims in Jerusalem did indeed organize protests against the court's decision. The Mufti of Jerusalem, Sheikh Muhammad Hussein, said it was hard to believe that the project's backers would want to build a museum of tolerance whose construction, as he put it, constitutes an act of aggression. We came to announce to the entire world in the name of all Palestinians, announced Sheikh Kamal Hatib at one of the protests, that, quote, we will not reconcile with you and we will not forgive you for violating the graves of our mothers, our fathers, and our grandparents. The protests notwithstanding, the work on the museum immediately resumed. The High Court suggested, however, that the project engineers construct an underground, horizontal, flat separation barrier between the foundation of the museum building and the remaining bodies below, thereby separating the living Jews in the structure above from the dead Arabs in the ground beneath their feet. Such a separation barrier, a wall on the horizontal plane, would of course perfectly mirror the separation barrier, a wall constructed on the vertical plane that Israel has built elsewhere in and around Jerusalem. I've described the wall in great detail else, elsewhere. In the present context, I need only point out that it constitutes merely one component of a complex of physical and bureaucratic mechanisms and procedures designed to impose nearly absolute Israeli control over the movement and lives of Palestinians in the occupied territories in total disregard for Israel's responsibility as an occupying power according to the Fourth Geneva Convention and the other constitutive documents of international humanitarian law which require it to facilitate 
rather than to disable the inhabitants' conduct of everyday life. We can think of the wall as expressing a kind of apartheid because of the principle of ethnic separation it involves. And I use the term apartheid not rhetorically, but by way of reference to the body of international law pertaining to racial discrimination, notably the International Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination, to which Israel is a signatory, and the Apartheid Convention, which builds on that convention. It should be noted, however, that the current Israeli apartheid has a very different function from apartheid in South Africa. South African apartheid was about the exploitation of black labor. Israeli apartheid is about the irrelevance, the removal, and the erasure of Palestinians. The extent of the apartheid system in the occupied territories cannot be overstated. It is comprehensive. There are, for example, two different transportation systems in the territories for the two populations, Jewish and non-Jewish two different educational systems for the children in the territory, two different legal and administrative structures. Jewish colonists, for example, enjoy the protections of Israeli civil law. Non-Jewish Palestinians are ruled by military law. The cumulative effect of these institutional and infrastructural differences is to enable the free movement of Jews while and by disabling the free movement of Palestinians. Indeed, the enabling of the one population is inseparable from the disabling of the other. For, as the Israeli architect Yael Weizmann points out, the whole point of the way in which Israel imposes its control on the occupied territories is to superimpose two separate political geographies, one Jewish, one Palestinian, on the same physical landscape. As Weizmann explains, the parts of the Jewish West Bank are seamlessly tied to each other and incorporated into Israel. The parts of the Palestinian West Bank, he says, on the other hand, are fractured and broken and fragmented, shards of territory cut off from each other. The result, according to Weizmann, is an Escher-like representation of geography, best understood in terms of what he calls the politics of verticality. Weizmann's notion is not merely figurative, it is literal as well. For example, where the West Bank's unlit, broken, potholed, or altogether unpaved Palestinian roads cross the well-lit, well-paved, vigilantly patrolled Jewish bypass roads, they, as in this picture, they plunge beneath them into tunnels. Jews traverse the landscape above, Arabs below. Israeli apartheid, in other words, functions in the vertical plane as well as the horizontal. One effect of this is, whenever possible, to render Palestinians invisible to Jewish colonists and to Israelis driving within eyesight of the West Bank. And if not invisible, then at least part of the background over and against which the modern infrastructure is built. Thus, Jewish colonists traversing the West Bank or Israelis driving on the highway parallel to the West Bank very often do not see Palestinians. They are in tunnels below or on the other side of the eight-meter-high separation wall. Seen from the Palestinian side, the wall is unmistakably a wall. Its brutalist design communicates unequivocally to Palestinians what Israel thinks of them. Seen from the Israeli side, however, the wall is often not really a wall. And as you know, they often talk about it as a fence rather than a wall. In many sections, like this one, it is smoothed over into the landscape, and its scale is disguised by shrubs, trees, and landscaping that gradually rises and falls, offsetting the severity that is so brutally and expressively naked on the Palestinian side. These are, two same, these are the same section of wall. I took both these pictures. And they're just from opposite sides of the wall, one on the Israeli side, one on the Palestinian side. But it's the same 10 or 15 slabs of concrete. 
from the Israeli point of view, the effect is not only to render the Palestinians on the other side of the wall invisible, but even if only momentarily, to render the process of rendering them invisible itself invisible. When possible, in other words, the wall as the signifier, the sign of erasure, is erased in turn, as though there was some magic trick that would erase the Palestinians in the landscape without the trace of that erasure being itself evident. In other places, the wall is written into the landscape from the Israeli side in the sense that it is painted over in such a way as to render it as pure background. In some cases, a pristine landscape is painted on the wall, replacing not only the actuality of the wall, but also the undesirable real landscape of living Palestinians. In other cases, the wall is painted over with decorative arches to disguise it as something other than what it actually is, even as something that connects, like a Roman aqueduct, rather than separates. Of course, none of these attempts to disguise the wall really succeed, because it's still a wall. No matter how much you paint it, it's still a wall. They're easily subverted. Nevertheless, what these adjustments to the wall on the Israeli side express is the same unstable combination of acknowledgement and denial, knowledge and repression, both self-repression and repression of the other, that can also be seen at work in Israel's Independence Park. On the one hand, there is a desire to do away with or to deny the Palestinian other, to retroactively fulfill the Zionist dream that Palestine is a land without a people for a people without a land, while also denying that such a denial is taking place by disguising its traces. On the other hand, once the willing suspension of disbelief wears off, or once the Palestinians intrude themselves yet once more onto the scene from which they were supposed to have been emptied or removed or evacuated, there is the returning knowledge that the other is, despite everything, actually really still there, and that even more denial, or perhaps some other even more effective method of dealing with this stubborn otherness, is therefore necessary. I'd like to turn now to Frank Gehry's design for the Museum of Tolerance in Jerusalem. Here we must address an apparent contradiction. On the one hand, it makes perfect sense for Gehry to be chosen as the architect for the Jerusalem Museum. His design will draw, literally, pull the site out of and away from the specificities of the local context. I mean, it looks like nothing anywhere within 10,000 miles. Because of the global status of Gehry's work, the site of Matman Allah Cemetery will now be much closer, in a sense, to Bilbao or to Los Angeles, both of which have well-known Gary buildings, than to, say, the Mount of Olives on the other side of Jerusalem. The logic of separation in play in the museum plan will be made complete by this last stage of removal from local context and the ground occupied. Occupation will, in fact, be turned into removal and symbolic transfer, not merely of bodies, but of the entire site. The doubts and hesitations expressed in other Israeli projects, Independence Park or the Wall, will be transcended in an effort to enable a site for the construction of a form of homeliness, a sense of home, that not only finally erases the last traces of the Palestinian presence, but lifts the very land, as it were, away from itself and plugs it immediately into the global space of global capital and global culture. This is emphasized, I think, in the artist's impressions of the designs, which, occup which occlude the project's urban context. This museum could be literally anywhere in the world, and that is part of the point. On the other hand, there are elements of Gary's design that do engage with Israeli colonial architecture, with the specificity of local site. 
It must be pointed out that the design differs markedly, though, from the playful sculptural look of billowing sheets of titanium cladding that seem to express Gary's freedom of expression in projects like Walt Disney Concert Hall in Los Angeles. Rather than conjuring up movement, freedom, waves, or billowing sails like Walt Disney Concert Hall, it suggests castles, fortresses, watchtowers, and above all, walls. This design, it seems to me, is about location, surveillance, power, and control, in other words, not freedom. It is in this sense that Gary's design actually does seem to consciously integrate all of the major components of Israeli colonial architecture, and it involves the same kind of play of the visible and the invisible that are at work in the occupied West Bank and East Jerusalem. The centerpiece of the museum complex is the Grand Hall, the building at the middle of the, this picture, the naming of which, if you're interested, is on offer for a donation of $10 million, which is surrounded by 16 titanium pillars of tolerance, the, the slabs that are up and down, which, again, if you're interested, you can don't ask me, I have to contact them, are on offer for a donation of only a $1 million each. Frank Gehry saw the Grand Hall as the starting point of his design, we're told on the museum's website, because of its openness on all sides. To him, I'm still quoting the website, it symbolized the living room of Jerusalem. The exterior of the 118-foot building is supported by 16 sculptured titanium pillars, which can be seen from miles away. Before visitors enter the Grand Hall, they will see the name of a donor inscribed on the outside of each of the pillars. The circular Grand Hall has windows and entry doors all along its 360-degree circumference. Every other structure in the complex faces towards it, so it commands the entire visual field. Its design recapitulates the panoptic and surveillance features that had become essential to Israeli colonial architecture in the occupied and colonized territories. Protected, symbolically of course, by its titanium walls, the symbolic glass and steel fortress at the heart of the museum complex functions as a kind of observation site from which to track the movement of bodies in and through the complex. I was trying to make a building that had body language, says Gary. People can come from all directions, he says, and I'm quoting him, and all kinds of people can come. In this sense, too, of course, Gary's design perfectly recapitulates the politics of exclusion that are evident throughout the occupied territories. Some people can come from all directions. Some people can be seen coming and going. Some people can enter the visual field dominated by the Grand Hall. Some people can feel at home in the living room of Jerusalem that he wants to design. But by no means do all kinds of people, as he says, have access to the museum or the sense of home that it wants to convey. Palestinians from the West Bank, most obviously, and from much of East Jerusalem, cannot come to the museum because they are blocked from access to Jerusalem by the wall and the other mechanisms of control that Israel uses to, to dominate the movement of Palestinians. But that act of exclusion is invisible. Indeed, it's irrelevant to Gary. He probably doesn't even know about it. In this sense, what he says perfectly aligns the living Palestinian bodies who are excluded from access to the museum because they're separated from the museum by a barrier built on the vertical plane with the dead Palestinian bodies in the soil beneath the complex who will be separated from it horizontally. Not only are Palestinian bodies rendered invisible, but again, perfecting the logic only partially enacted by the wall or Independence Park, the process by which they are erased, removed, or transferred will itself be rendered invisible. Thus, the logic of occupation and colonization cuts seamlessly across from the surrounding colonial context to the museum itself. 
If the museum is like a home with a living room, as its marketing literature puts it, the residents of this home are, just like the residents of the homes in Har Homa or the other Jewish colonies in and around Jerusalem, all of one kind to the exclusion of other kinds of people. A sense of homeliness is enabled for the privileged national self at, at the expense of the other who has been managed out of sight. For in the context of occupation and colonization, all kinds of people, to use his phrase, actually means, without admitting it, only Jewish people because of the invisible process of exclusion and erasure by which the universal all people is, re is actually restricted silently and invisibly to the particular Jew Jewish people. In exactly the same sense, when the Israeli government expropriates land from Palestinian families in order to build a Jewish colony like this one, it always does so officially for public use. It never says that, in, that the universal formulation of the public actually refers particularly and exclusively to the Jewish public because Palestinians are excluded from the Jewish colonies. Thus, in a situation where only the particular is visible because the other has been removed, the particular seems to become the universal. That is, the particular self becomes the universal self, a point to which I'll return in a few minutes. What is enabled, then, is an act of self-contemplation founded on a violent act of exclusion symbolized by the walls that are so essential to Gary's design. In this sense, too, the choice of Gary as architect makes perfect sense. The architect best known for his self-referential structures is chosen to design a building that is thematically all about a form of self-referentiality self constructed on the premise of the physical and symbolic exclusion of the other. Walls are among the design's most prominent features. The so-called pillars of tolerance, which will be visible from miles away, as the marketing literature says, and which, as I said, resemble nothing so much as the slabs of the wall, the wall surrounding the entire complex, and the wall that seems to hang suspended in front of the visitor center. Looking like nothing so much as a scale replica of a section of Israel's West Bank wall, this wall seems to hover in midair. The wall that is so politically laden out there is he, just a few hundred meters away, by the way, is here so relieved of its burden that it actually seems to float. It's shabby concrete transformed by the alchemy of Gary's design into the pure essence of separation so that the hovering wall is freed of the mud, the dirt, and the graffiti contaminating its real-world counterpart out there. The pillars of tolerance themselves render Israel's wall in shiny, curved titanium rather than drab, rectilinear concrete. Just as the Jewish geography of the West Bank is smooth and unrestricted, while the Palestinian geography is striated and closed, the wall here is open and lit, rather than forbidding and closed. It enables panoptic, circular, all-encompassing vision, rather than shutting down the visual field, as the wall does in the West Bank. In Gary's design, that which is separated is so utterly separated that it has disappeared into thin air. The separated other, the Palestinian, is so far gone that the self constructed through the process of separation and removal is left all alone in blissful self-contemplation. Here then is the resolution to the apparent contradiction implied by Gary's design. Look at it one way and you see Bilbao or Walt Disney Concert Hall, late capital, freedom of expression, global culture, etc. Look at it another way and you see the wall. 
The design takes the building blocks of Israeli colonial architecture and translates them into the realm of freedom by which this site wants to be, wants so desperately to be, tied to Bilbao and Los Angeles. One kind of viewer, one kind of subject, is tied down and hopelessly fixed. The other is free. One moves, the other is bound. In this sense, the project represented by the Museum of Tolerance fits in neatly, even perfectly symmetrically, with another project taking place in Jerusalem, exactly on the other side of the old city from Manalah Cemetery. In the Palestinian district of Silwan, Israel is today moving forward with plans to demolish an entire neighborhood, threatening a thousand Palestinians at once with instant homelessness and displacement, a scene more typical of Gaza than of Jerusalem. And they're doing so not on the pretense that they're merely enforcing city building codes, the Israelis' usual excuse for home demolition in Jerusalem, but in order to help clear space for an exclusively Jewish archaeological park that is taking shape literally beneath the foundations of the Palestinian homes of Silwan. The archaeological park, whose website you can visit if you want to, the so-called City of David, is only one of a network of such parks intended to consolidate Israel's hold on Jerusalem. Thus, on one side of the city, of the old city, in Silwan, living Palestinians are being removed to make room for dead Jews. And on the other side of the old city, in Manalah Cemetery, dead Palestinians are being removed to make room for living Jews. It is little wonder that the white tents into which the skeletons now being removed from the cemetery are, are being taken bear such a resemblance to the white tents that have been the hallmark of the Palestinian refugee for over six decades, or the white tents no doubt being prepared in order to house the residents of Silwan once Israel's bulldozers move in on their homes. The most sublime act is to set another before you, the English poet William Blake once wrote. What's happening in Jerusalem, though, is the exact opposite of what Blake called for. What is being facilitated is a form of self-contemplation premised on and made possible by the removal of the other and the denial of his very existence. Indeed, a form of self-contemplation so cleansed of the traces of otherness that the particular comes to think of itself as universal because the act of exclusion on which it is based is so extreme is precisely what will be on offer within the Museum of Tolerance. The themes that Gary's design elaborates in visual terms externally, structurally, are, in other words, also to be addressed in textual terms in the museum's content. Let me give just a couple of quick examples of how this is to be played out in the museum's displays, which, according to its marketing literature, will take the tendencies already built into the L.A. Museum of Tolerance, the original one, to their ultimate extreme. The aim of the Jerusalem Institution is, we are told, to offer, I'm quoting from the top paragraph there, a social laboratory that speaks to the world and confronts today's important issues, issues like global anti-Semitism, terrorism, and hate, a place that will remind us that greater than any external threat is the internal divide that separates us, a place that will reinforce the idea that Jewish unity is not a slogan but an essential recipe for survival in the 21st century. The remarkable thing here about the seamless, is the seamlessness of the move from universal statements about what might have seemed at first glance like matters of global concern to statements that make it clear that this is not an institution interested in the global and the universal after all, but rather an institution that, by excluding the other, reframes, reframes the, itself as universal. There's nobody left, after all. Not hate in general is at stake, for example, the universal, but hatred of Jews specifically, the particular. 
The problem here is that the slippage from universal to particular is so subtle that one almost doesn't even notice it. And even after some consideration, it remains unclear who exactly is the us invoked in this thing. Are we everyone in the world? Or are we only Jews? For the passage that begins by addressing the world ends by invoking Jewish unity as though there were no difference between Jews and the world. If it is not already abundantly clear that the Museum of Tolerance in Jerusalem aims to recode the particular as the universal, the description of the institution's central and most important exhibit will surely drive that point home. A People's Journey. You probably can't read it. I'll read it for you. This experiential historical walkthrough, using the ship Exodus as a metaphor, dramatizes the seminal events and the pivotal moments in Jewish history. A People's Journey takes the museum visitor on a voyage through the ages, an evocative environmental multimedia one-and-a-half-hour presentation of the Golden Age of Spain, the Spanish Inquisition, the Protestant Reformation, the Dreyfus Trial, and Theodore Herzl's Zionist Conference in Basel, immersing the visitor among heroes and amid layers of memory. The exhibit serves as a gateway connecting the past and serving as an introduction to the challenges confronting the modern state of Israel in the museum's second section, the social laboratory. That's all from their description. The point is that this is not simply a museum dedicated to Jewish history. There would be nothing wrong with that, of course, except for it being built on a Muslim cemetery. It is not even simply a museum dedicated to an attempt to rewrite the complexity and richness and vitality of Jewish history in unilinear teleological terms in, as Zionism. It is rather a museum that, having purged itself of the traces of the other, the Palestinian, seeks to represent a Zionist teleology in terms of universal values, to rewrite Zionism as a universal value. What is on display then is not Zionism as such, but Zionism as translated into the realm of value and recoded as tolerance. Otherwise, why not simply call it the Museum of Jewish History or the Museum of Zionism? Why call it the Museum of Tolerance? What is at stake here in the desire to package a museum about the particular Zionism in terms that so grandly invoke the universal tolerance? What is interesting about the deployment of the term tolerance here is not simply that Zionism is presented as the expression of tolerance, whereas resistance to Zionism is presented ipso facto as intolerance. It is also that the term tolerance itself is used as though it could be redefined as exclusive rather than inclusive. For the notion of otherness and the existence of an other are both built into the very concept of tolerance. I mean, tolerance doesn't mean self-tolerance. I, I don't tolerate myself. I tolerate you, the other. That's what tolerance means. It implies an engagement with some other. So it actually, it's literally meaning is to talk about self-tolerance in, in this way. So tolerance is, by definition, tolerance of the other, not of the self. This is clearly a museum founded by a Jewish institution that seeks to represent a certain version of Jewish history, framed in a particular way, obviously, for a Jewish audience, us. It is not about the other at all. It is about the self. More than that, it is a museum about a self constructed in a formerly other space from which the other has been removed and the last traces of otherness erased. Morally speaking, the museum makes a mockery of the usual understanding of tolerance. It is best, however, to understand this process not simply in moral terms as an act of hypocrisy or grotesque self-satisfaction. 
That may be in part what it is, but there's much more at stake in the project as well, both symbolically and politically speaking. What is at stake is the play of the universal and the particular, which are essential to the discourse of tolerance in the first place, but here, again, are altered and reframed, though in profoundly and, I think, unconsciously telling ways. For one thing, as with everything connected to this project, the act of exclusion and the erasure of the Palestinian other is so clean, so pure, so total, that it is no longer recognizable as such. In fact, it is an act of erasure that, far more successfully than Independence Park or the wall, erases itself in turn. When the museum's backers and initiators, above all Rabbi Heyer, say that they don't see anything wrong with building a museum of tolerance and a center of human dignity on a dispossessed people's graveyard, or that, as he says, moderation and reason have prevailed when people are prevented from visiting their relatives' graves, or that Zionism is also, as he says, a force of tolerance, they must be seen to be absolutely sincere, convinced of their own deep morality. This is not just an act of hypocrisy, in other words, which is exactly why we need to go beyond a moralistic approach in trying to understand and analyze it. What is being expressed here is a kind of genuine blindness, an inability to understand or even to recognize the other. We can think of it as a kind of racism, not the kind that one encounters, say, in Avigdor Lieberman, who came to Israel as a 20-year-old Moldovan Jewish immigrant and now as an immigrant wants to expel the remnant of the indigenous Palestinian population not successfully cleansed from their homes in 1948. They have no place here, Lieberman said of the country's Palestinians. They can take their bundles and get lost. Lieberman's kind of racism is blunt, but it is also honest. It acknowledges the existence of the other, and it says, frankly, that it seeks to remove the other. The point is that the violence that it directs against the other is premised, ultimately, on an acknowledgement of the other's existence and the threat of the other's existence and its sense of home to the Zionist project to create an exclusively Jewish home in Palestine. This other kind of racism, by contrast, the one that the Museum of Tolerance expresses so perfectly, is much more complicated. Its premise is not simply denial of the other or erasure of the other, but rather, as I've been saying all along, the denial of denial, the erasure of erasure. This is a form of denial that produces the inability, the absolutely sincere, honest incapacity to acknowledge that a denial and an erasure have taken place because that denial, that erasure, have themselves been erased and purged from consciousness. This is a form of Zionist consciousness that has been built on the premise of the denial of denial, a form of consciousness blissfully unaware of the forms of denial of denial on which it is based. This is why so often, I think, even the most principled criticisms of Israeli policy are received with the eruptions of blind rage that cloud discussions of the Zionist conflict with the Palestinians in the U.S. and elsewhere. When that which has been so far and so long denied and repressed is forced back into the consciousness that has denied it, the reaction is sheer fury rather than intelligent and articulate counter-argument of which there is such a paucity in contemporary Zionism. In discovering this psychic formation, this sense of, this worldview, this sense of being, really, we have, as I suggested earlier, arrived at another kind of Zionism from the one represented by Lieberman. This is the form of contemporary Zionism, the dominant one in the U.S. and elsewhere as well, probably, that is founded on the repression or the denial of the knowledge of the ethnic cleansing of Palestine in 1948. 
This is the Zionism that, in its more liberal formulations, is even happy, perhaps, to talk about Israel, maybe, relinquishing the occupied territories, as long as the Nakba, or catastrophe of 1948, the fate of the refugees of 1948, and the status of Israel's second-class Palestinian citizens, that is, the constitutive racism of Israel as a state, as indicated by its, for example, its violations of the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination, is not brought into the discussion. What is at work here, then, is not a first-order kind of denial and erasure, but rather a second-order kind. The form of Zionist identity, worldview, subjectivity that emerges here is premised on the act of denying that there has been a denial, erasing the fact that an erasure has taken place. Rather than denying the rights of the Palestinians, it denies that their rights have been denied. The form of identity that emerges from this second-order denial is then not premised on repression, but rather on the repression of repression. This second-order denial is exactly what the Museum of Tolerance in Jerusalem is all about. The museum is to be built for people like this. And it is perfectly fitting then, not simply that such a museum should be built on top of an ethnically cleansed graveyard, but that those who will eventually gather to celebrate its opening and those who will visit it in the years afterwards will have no idea of the profundity of the historical, material, and psychical layers of denial on which they stand. Thank you. keep my comments very, very brief because people, I guess, want to ask questions. One of the things that struck me during Sari's talk tonight um, was, on the one hand, how familiar it is and yet how unfamiliar it is at the same time. And it just reminded me today to just read a very, very quick quote from Edward Said, who's actually related to Sari, the late Edward Said, who died in 2003. And when one reads what he says, it reminds me very much of what Sari said tonight, and that is that as much as things change, they stay remarkably the same, just worse in a way. The levels of delusion that, it, that exist to actually convince people that what is happening is actually not happening. In other words, a perversion of truth. I hate to use the word, I hate to use the word Orwellian, but that's actually the only appropriate term I can use. I'll read you a very quick quote from Edward Said from 2002, which is from the London Review of Books. The main difference between 1982 and 2002 is that the Palestinians now being victimised and besieged are in Palestinian territories that were occupied in 1967 and they have remained there despite the ravages of the occupation and the destruction of the economy and the whole civilian infrastructure of collective life. The main similarity is, of course, the disproportional means used to do it. For example, the hundreds of tanks and bulldozers used to enter towns and villages like Janine or refugee camps like Janine's, to kill, vandalise, prevent ambulances and first aid workers from helping cut off water and electricity and so on. All the support of the US. And one of the things that struck me listening to Sari this evening about this um, museum of so-called tolerance is that I would ask anyone in this audience to say whether they've read anything about that story in our media at all. I certainly haven't. So let me just firstly thank Sari again and for a wonderfully, wonderful speech. And we'd love to take questions. There are two mics, I'm told, on either side. And as one always should say, ideally, not ideally, definitely, questions, not statements, and to keep it short but to the point.
actually see anybody stand up at all. I'm happy to ask the first question. Would that be the best? Okay. Let me ask a, a generic question, but a necessary one. Um, there's about to be this evening, a US time, a meeting, or supposed meeting, between Barack Obama, Netanyahu, and Mahmoud Abbas in New York on the sidelines of the upcoming UN conference. Give us a sense, although I guess you can write a book about it, which you have, um, where you think the Obama administration might be going in the so-called peace process, if we can call it that. That's a, that's a very important question, Anthony. Thank you. Um, it, it seems, I'm sorry to say that it seems to me that the Obama administration, actually you said it very well in, in your introductory remarks, which is that there are very, lots of pretty speeches but very little substance. And the big question is whether President Obama has the, wants to spend the political capital that it'll take to push through anything. And to, seem, to me, it seems inconceivable that he wants to do that, whether for reasons of uh, the Zionist lobby in Washington or because he has so many other things on his agenda at this point that Palestine sort of drops to the bottom or near the bottom or not anywhere near the top. So what we see in the meeting, I think it's instructive, the meeting of Obama and Abbas and Netanyahu is Netanyahu, first of all, who completely refuses to countenance any kind of compromise whatsoever, fundamentally speaking, not rhetorically, fundamentally speaking, so on the one hand. On the other hand, uh, Obama, who, as I said, doesn't want to expand political capital to bring pressure to bear on Israel. And then Abbas, who is basically kind of useless because he has no cards and no pressure and no leverage and no nothing behind him. So in a situation like that, you know, it's sort of inevitable what the meeting is going to produce. It's going to produce essentially one more photo op. And we have to ask ourselves also, why is it that, that there are periodically these attempts to revive the Middle East peace process, like in Annapolis in 2007. Why can't we just say, look, it's this way of trying to resolve the conflict is not going to work. We need another way of trying to resolve it, and one that takes peace and justice and, and rights and equality into, into full account. Uh, thanks. I'm scared of Anthony's descriptions, so I better <laughs> go to question. Uh, my question is... A uh, bunch of in indigenous people who are, have been playing their mom's cradle, schoolyard and backyard, and they have been confronted by a bunch of people who are the holder of passport from God, and they are saying, God gave us the land. You people get out of here, and they're conducting ethnic cleansing, genocide, everything else. So how come the indigenous people, the victims of the terrorists, the perpetrator of the terrorism, are not terrorists? And second part of the question is, of course, regarding fact. I got a couple of hundred years old maps, probably available to everyone, but media is not publishing them. They are not telling us what was the 98% genuine offer of Yehud Barak to Yasser Arafat at Camp David on, on today. They are not giving us the boundary of, of Israel. Is it the current 78% old Palestine or all the way, way from uh, uh, Palestine to Greece? Where is it? Where is the boundary? Why it stops? Thank you. Um, thanks for the question. I, it seems to me, I mean, you're right, that it, it's a spectacular, it's just a, a I don't understand it. I mean, I, 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 can, I read newspapers, and I don't know how they work particularly, but I, you know, I read them and, or watch the TV news or listen to the radio. But I don't understand why it is, for example, that, that so little has been made of this museum, for example. I mean, I don't know how many of you knew about it. You put your hands up if you've, if you've heard about the museum before. It's very few people who know about this, this project. Very few people know about uh, all kinds of things, both in the occupied territories and in Israel itself. I mean, for example, I had no idea when I started writing my book 
that there's no such thing as civil marriage inside Israel, which, it, which is something that has, you know, it's of massive significance because it means that somebody who's Jewish can't marry somebody who's not Jewish, legally speaking, inside Israel. So there are things that we just don't know. Or about the peace process itself, it's true, we, we, we get this sort of mantra, Ehud Barak offered Arafat 95% or whatever it is of the West Bank. It's, and it's just, factually, it's not true. First of all, there was no such offer. There was no offer at all. And second of all, it, in fact, what was being talked about was offering sort of a kind of rhetorical sovereignty over the territory, but maintaining the Israeli army presence and the colonies and the bypass roads and so on. So there's this, the ways in which language is used, to me, you know, completely, uh, it, uh, it's, it's mind-boggling. And the question then is, you know, why do newspaper journalists do that? Is it something that, that they want to do? Is it something they're told to do? Is it something that their editors fear to meddle with? Is it a sense of self-policing and self-monitoring and self-censorship? I honestly don't know what the answer to, that, to those questions are. But it's true that, that the media does, in general, the mainstream media does a, a very poor job of conveying the realities that it ought to be conveying to an informed global audience. Um, thanks for your talk. Um, just before my question, I'm going to make a small comment because it's kind of interesting. Um, that another correlation between the situation with the Museum of Tolerance and the situation in Silwan is that in the digging of underneath of the, the suburb of Silwan um, for the city of David ruins, they actually uncovered more than 200 bodies, Palestinian Muslim bodies, um, that were discarded in that process. Um, and at the same time, in the, in the tours that are given through the city of David, uh, the, the history that's presented of the, of the situation is, um, go, has a huge leap in the, in the chronology from, from 3000 BC to the 1800s uh, because there is no history between those times, um, just as those bodies didn't actually exist and they've disappeared now. Um, my... my question is, um, just in regards to the Museum of Tolerance, the current Israeli line, as I understand it, is that they're, it's okay that they're building on this cemetery because Palestinians have already done that. Um, and so, you know, what's good for the goose is good for the gander, and it's, so that makes it okay. But I haven't actually been able to find anything in regards to what they're actually building there, what, what Palestinians have supposedly built there in the past. Do you know about that? That's, that's, a, that's an excellent question. Um, in fact, the reason why I know about this is because this, the paper I just gave is being a longer version. It was being published in the journal uh, Critical Inquiry in the U.S., and both Frank Gehry and the museum have responded to me, so I know what the response is, and I can, I can re rehearse it to you chapter and verse, all of their arguments. Their, their fundamental argument, if that's what it is, it's not actually that the Palestinians are built on the cemetery. It's rather their argument is that Muslim, they say Muslim cemeteries can be basically desacralized and then put to other use by, in Muslim uh, countries. So, for example, they say, and I can't remember off the top of my head what the dates and places and times are, but you know, they refer to some cemetery that's, say, in Saudi Arabia or Yemen or something. It was desacralized and then put, you know, a, a university or something was built on what had been a cemetery. And, and therefore they say... Muslim cemeteries can be desacralized. Therefore, it's okay that it happens in this case. And obviously, there's, a, there's a, a, I think, a major difference, even if it's true that Muslim communities can desacralize one of their own cemeteries, about which I know nothing. But even if, it, even if it's true for the purposes of argument, there's, a, I think, a considerable difference between a Muslim community considering its own cemetery and saying, instead of using the land for this purpose, we're going to use it for a different purpose for our community, for ourselves as Muslims, and a Jewish institution backed by the state of Israel 
t- using a Muslim cemetery that was captured by force and, and transferred to the, to the Jerusalem municipality really in contravention of international law. Uh, this, they're, not, they're two totally different cases and situations. And to me, it's amazing that the museum wants to claim that these two things are identical, identical cases. But I, I, I think it just goes to show that there's a sense that they are unable to grasp what it is that they're actually engaged in, which is why Rabbi Heyer can say, you know, when the project goes, the, when the high court says the project can go ahead, he can say moderation and tolerance have prevailed. I think it, it would be a mistake to say that he's, he's um, I need a polite expression for this, that he's, that he's not telling the truth. I, I think the, the issue is not truth or, or falsehood. The issue is that he, he actually sincerely believes what it is he's, he's saying. I don't think he's, he's making it up. He really does... He just can't understand what's wrong with the project, and that's why they come up with these kinds of facile arguments to compare uh, a Muslim community's treatment of its own cemetery with what's happening to this, treat- to this cemetery in Israel at the hands of this Jewish institution backed by the, the Israeli state. Mishmi Hajar from Sydney University. Uh, Sari, um, thanks very much. I was uh, really very, uh, like... Uh, interested in the uh, way you use the uh, language and uh, discourse analysis to um, explain the denial of denial and the universalization of Zionism. But uh, we use that, or you use the English uh, language and English discourse. I'm interested to see what uh, kind of uh, Hebrew and what kind of promotion for the uh, museum in Hebrew uh, and Yiddish, and perhaps in Arabic. I don't know whether there is any uh, in Hebrew. And uh, so, can you comment on that? Yeah, uh, that, I, to be honest, I don't know what the answer to that question is. But what I, I think it raises an interesting point, which is that the museum, that is the foundation, the, the Simon Wiesenthal Center, is an American institution. And this is something that actually there. And I should also say there, by the way, there are plenty of there are plenty of Israelis themselves who are opposed to the project for all kinds of reasons. For example. They don't all like the idea of building up people's cemeteries, and it, it raises hackles, and you know, rightly so, I think. Um, so it, what's interesting, it seems to me, is that uh, what adds to the complexity of this entire project is that it's, 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 a, it's a project the, uh, that's being led and directed by an American institution rather than by uh, an Israeli one, although it's obviously in cooperation with Israeli institutions and the Israeli government and the municipality of Jerusalem and so forth. So it seems like it's, it's even more removed from from local context in the sense that this is an American institution that's working with an American sense of what's going on on the ground there. And it doesn't, I don't know if they even have in mind, in fact, an audience uh, inside Israel. It seems like it's all, all the more self-contemplated from the perspective of the institution that's pushing the program, if you see what I mean. I think th- there's no doubt we all agree that the occupation should end and it should end yesterday. In fact, in poll after poll, 80% of Israelis agree with the same thing. Would, would you agree, Professor, that what is missing from your presentation tonight is the other side of the story? The fact that there have been up to half a dozen serious opportunities for peace for Palestinian state to be established going back to the moment of Israel's creation 60 years ago. Consistently, they have been turned down by Palestinian leadership, and the reason they have been knocked back goes to the heart of the problem we've been discussing tonight, and that is a consistent refusal by the Palestinian leadership to accept Israel's existence, because saying yes to a state of Palestine means saying yes to a state of Israel. And one only has to Google 
the Hamas Charter to find proof of that, where it spells out very clearly, Israel will exist and will only exist until Islam will obliterate it. Uh, I, mean, I think it's. I think it's. I think it's quite. Are you going away, or are you going to listen to my response? Okay. Um, I think it's quite remarkable that after all I've just said, you asked me no question about what I actually talked about, but rather something that's that's in fact irrelevant to the purposes of what I've been talking about today. So I'd I'd like to know why you don't want to ask and talk about what I've been talking about, rather than you want to talk about something else. I can't obviously give a whole now extra hour and a half. I don't want to try people's patience. I, I mean, I could if you wanted me to, but I'm not going to give an, an hour and a half lecture to explain the history of the so-called peace process and so on and so forth. What it comes down to fundamentally is that there has been no serious, no serious uh, uh, attempt to, to enable on the part of Israel the creation of a Palestinian state. The most obvious single piece of evidence one needs to think about in that regard is that Israeli colonization of the occupied territories has not stopped for one moment since it began in 1967. So if, as you claim, the Israelis are so interested in creating a Palestinian state and they've done so much to facilitate the creation of a Palestinian state and it's those naughty, irresponsible Palestinians who keep saying no, 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 then why is it that the Israelis keep building and building and building in the territory that, on your account, should be turned over into a Palestinian state? I mean, how could the Israelis both want to create a Palestinian state and yet build on the very land where the state is supposedly supposed to be built. And I just think, I just think I mean, you have to kind of, you know, square, square, the, I mean, square the circle you're talking about. Try and ask yourself that. Don't, I, mean, I have my own answer to the question. Ask yourself, how could it be that Israel could keep saying it wants peace and it wants peace and it wants peace and yet, physically, it's making the, literally, sort of infrastructurally, it's making the prospect of peace utterly impossible. I mean, I'll just cite one last thing to, to stop this conversation for now. Uh, the UN issued a report in 2007 that showed that almost 40% of the West Bank is now taken up by infrastructure that's off limits to Palestinians. It's only for Jews in the, in the West Bank. So what that means is that basically half of the West Bank is gone. And the 60% that remains is, is, is broken up into little islands that look like an archipelago rather than one continuous piece of territory. So it seems to me you have to ask yourself, why is it that if the Israelis have been so desperate to make peace, they've kept on colonizing the very land where a Palestinian state ought to have, ought to be, ought to have been in this story created? And since they've gone on doing that, and since the colonies grow every single day, the population of those colonies is growing at a rate three times greater than that of Israel itself. You have to ask yourself, surely this can't really be about a willingness on the part of Israel to see, to make possible the creation of a Palestinian state. There must be something else at stake. And then put that together with what I just spent an hour talking about, and perhaps you'll come up with an answer to your own question. Uh, hi. Uh, just um, because it's relevant to the issue of speaking about tolerance and ignoring the Palestinians, uh, I just thought I'd mention and raise as a question that, um, uh, as you know, Benny Morris in his famous Haaretz interview said that the Palestinians uh, had been expelled and the problem was that they weren't all expelled and the Palestinians were barbarians and that a cage had to be built for them. Um, and in a parallel to the Museum of Tolerance, um, the head of the leading a Jewish body in New South Wales, the state we're in, 
uh, introduced um, Mr. Morris by giving, you know, the head of it gave a long talk about his struggle against anti-Semitism and racism without mentioning that the person they introduced thought the Palestinians were barbarians. And as it happens, the person who gave him such a warm introduction was um, Mr. Aladef, who apparently opposes the occupation. Um, so, and the other leading uh, Zionist lobby is Ajak, um, which has come out in favor of the expulsion of the Palestinians in 1948, saying that the expul- they, they underestimate them, but say it's perfectly understandable and things like that. Um, so in such a context where the Palestinians either deserve what they get or it doesn't matter, uh, I wonder what sort of prospects you think there can be uh, for raising public awareness and, you know, addressing uh, prejudice and dismissal of the Palestinians and their rights and even their existence. Thank you for that question. I mean, I want to reflect on what you started by talking about because I think it's a, an extremely important point. There are Zionists. Benny Morris is, is uh, maybe the most famous current example. Uh, the demographer Arnon Sofer of the University of Haifa, a government advisor, is another example, who are perfectly clear. They speak Benny Morris in that famous interview, and I encourage you all to go look for this Benny Morris interview. It's with Haaretz in, in 2004, republished in the New Left Review afterwards. Uh, and, and in it he says, you know, I can't quote it off the top of my head, but more or less he says that it was essential to expel 700,000 Palestinians in order to create a Jewish state in what had been Palestine. So Benny Morris says, look, you, it was impossible to create a, a Jewish state when there's this land with all these Palestinians on it because how can you have a Jewish state where all these non-Jews are, are there physically on the land? They have to be removed. And as, as, you, as the questioner just pointed out, he concludes by saying that it was too bad that the Israelis only removed up to the, what's now the 60, what was called the 67 border, that they should have removed all the Palestinians all the way to the other side of the Jordan River. Now, it seems to me that there's an incredible contradiction between that kind of forthrightness. I mean, I, I think it's horrible what he says, but I, I have to admire the kind of brute honesty. I mean, there's a kind of honesty to what he's saying, that this is what we had to do. We did it, and it was a good thing that we did it. And in fact, we should have done even more. But then you have that with the kind of example of the question that we just had before, which is all wrapped up into, well, we, they didn't do anything, and it's, our, it's not our fault, and they attacked us, and what about Hamas charter and all this other stuff? And you have to say, what's going on? How come some Zionists say, look, these guys were in the way, we threw them out, it's too bad we didn't throw them all out. And then you have other people saying, they kept attacking us, and it wasn't our fault, and I don't know what happened. It's interesting just as a, as a kind of problem to ask, how could it be that there are these two diametrically opposed understandings of the situation from the same side, by the way. That's the whole point. That's kind of what I was trying to get at in this, in, this, in this talk, too. How could it be that you can have, on the one hand, somebody like Lieberman, who says, we want to remove them all, throw them all. They don't belong here. They should take their bundles and get lost. On the other hand, you have this museum that effectively wants the same thing. It just doesn't have the courage or there's some short circuitry going on in its brain that denies it from saying that's what it actually wants. It wants it, but it doesn't want to admit to itself that that's what it wants. And I think... That's, I mean, in my understanding, but that's where we get these two different strands of Zionism. One that is perfectly clear, perfectly blunt, perfectly, you know, sort of, you know, kind of bludgeoning way, honest, brutal, but honest. And on the other hand, this other one that's all wrapped up in layers of denial and contradiction and, 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 and historical manipulation and so forth. And I don't know how they coexist together. All I know is that they're on the same side. And it seems to me that the mission, then, is to find out what's, what actually did happen. And I think the amazing thing here is that Benny Morris's 
work, not just that interview, but his, his, his historical books, help tremendously in, in, in documenting exactly what happened in 1948 and what's been happening ever since 1948. So, I mean, I, I, see, I see that, uh, you know, the, the task of people who, who want to help bring about a just and lasting peace for both people, which is certainly what I want, is to begin by understanding what the actual situation is, not by, not by falling back endlessly on the same old cliches and, and lines and mantras and so forth, but by actually reading, investigating. When Benny Morris says something like that, well, why does he? I mean, what's he saying? What, what is he talking about? Where does where does this logic come from? Where does it lead to? What is the history of this kind of thought that says it's perfectly permissible to take people living on land and throw them out because? They don't fit in your conception of what your state should look like on their land. I think that's what people should be investigating and not just rehashing the same old cliches from the Internet, which is what they seem to do sometimes. Um, sorry. Um, it's interesting um, that you um, use the um, rather ironically um, uh, Orwellian notion of a Zionist uh, teleology. Um, uh, the uh, Frankfurt School uh, did some work looking at the genealogy of uh, international human rights law. And uh, one of the, the great uh, paradoxes is that uh, uh, it um, owes an, an enormous amount uh, to the Judeo-Christian uh, intellectual tradition. Um, in the light of this... Um, do you feel that perhaps what we need to be doing in a post-metaphysical, um, increasingly secularist um, uh, and supposedly post-colonial discursive context, what we need to be doing is um, transcending this chronically pathological dichotomous thinking that's going on? Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's, there's no question. That, that's why... As Anthony kindly said in, in his introductory remarks about me, that I believe that the only way to resolve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is to create one state for both peoples that treats everybody equally, that, that I think all people are entitled to live in dignity and peace and, 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 and justice and so forth without interference from uh, occupying powers and so forth. And I think that the only way out, fundamentally, as far as I'm concerned, is to remove the kind of opposition between Palestinian and Israeli and, and to create a state that, that has them both and that treats them both as equals and then, and then puts the onus on them as, as two peoples living in the, as equals to figure out how to sort out their, their combined destiny because, because history has brought them together. Now the question is, how, what are they going to do with their destiny? But the, the way to peace, it seems to me, at least peace with justice, involves rather than going on, as you're saying, sticking with dualisms and oppositions and binary opposites, opening up and, and trying to Re, to, to reinvent the kind of, uh, the kind of uh, harmonious multicultural past that Palestine once had. We're nearly out of time, but we just take the last three questions um, one after another, and then Sari can answer them in some very convincing way altogether. <laughs> okay. um, yes, I'm very interested in your vision for a just uh, peace for the future. I'd like to refer to three things you talked about tonight. One is the museum itself. One is the concept of dispossession and the other is um, the right of return. 
The museum has been the subject of great debate in the Jewish press, both in Israel and in the Jewish world. All the issues that you've raised are raised in that debate, and that is actually why the museum has not yet been built. Um, in terms of dispossession, we're looking at um, two dispossessed peoples. We're looking at almost 800,000 dispossessed Palestinians out of Palestine, We're looking at almost a million dispossessed Jews out of the Arab world, including Yemen, which you mentioned, where my husband's family came from and were expelled from. And I'm looking at the concept of a right of return for both peoples to their own states, a Jewish state and a Palestinian state alongside each other and wondering whether that might not be the only just solution. And I'm wondering in your in your writing, which I have read quite extensively since you instructed me to do so, why you so thoroughly discount a two-state solution? Can I answer it quickly? Okay. Because it, it might get complicated. Okay. Uh, super quickly, because now we have to close. But um, there were three questions. <laughs> the dispossess. I mean, I, I, I don't think anybody should be dispossessed. And I, I don't think... I think it was a monumental act of, of, of monstrosity that Arab Jews were expelled or, or left their, their homes in the Arab world. They, they absolutely, I think, have unquestionably they have a right to return to their homes if, you, if they want to return to Iraq and to Yemen and so forth. I'm not sure anybody would want to return to Iraq necessarily right now, but in principle they should have, of course. That should never have happened, and of course they have the right to return to their homes, no doubt whatsoever, as far as I'm concerned. The reason why I'm, I'm, I'm against the two-state solution is, first of all, because it's become, as I said in response to the earlier question, physically unworkable. That is, there's no land on which to create a Palestinian state. It's all been colonized, basically, or broken up into bits and pieces that can never have offer the basis of a state. Secondly, because it doesn't address the rights of Palestinians who are living as second-class citizens inside Israel. And thirdly, because it doesn't express, it doesn't address the right of return of those who were expelled in 1948. So it seems to me that, just to go back to what you're talking about, the solution for all of these things is to say that people have the right to live in dignity and in peace in their homes, and that nobody should be stopped from going back to what is their home, fundamentally. Whether they're Arabs or Jews or Palestinians or Israelis, People have a right to live at peace in their homes. That's why I think creating one democratic and secular state would do that in the case of Palestine and Israel. And, of course, as, as I said, I think Arab Jews should have the, absolutely the right to go back to their homes in Arab countries if that's what they want to do. No question. Um, I very much enjoyed how literary your analysis was. And I wondered what, you, I think you're a professor of literature, is that right? Um, I wondered what you thought about, um, given that the, the Nekba produced such an extraordinary body of Palestinian writers and poets, I wondered what you thought literature's possibilities were in the, in the peace process. I, I mean, I think, yeah, there's, there's some, there's some, I mean, that's a huge question. I can't really do the question justice in the in the 30 seconds I have to answer it. Let me just give one quick, quick, quick example that you can, people can look at then. I think it's, it's, it's worth looking at. The great Palestinian novelist, Ghassan Kanafani, before he was assassinated by the Israelis, wrote a story called Return to Haifa. And in this story, it's, it's about the story, to, I don't want to ruin, the, I want to reveal what happens, but basically it's about the story of a Palestinian family that goes back to their home in Haifa to find out what happened to it. And they find living in their home, obviously, a Jewish family that, that had taken a home over in 1948. And it's about the encounter, it's a long story, but it, essentially it's about the encounter of 
a Palestinian narrative of wanting to return to the home from which these Palestinians were dispossessed. And then they meet these, these Jewish people there, and we get the whole Jewish narrative of the Holocaust and what happened to them and so forth. And the story doesn't resolve this, this, two, this, this clash of the two narratives. It presents them both. But I think it's astonishing to think in retrospect that the greatest revolutionary Palestinian novelist in the 1960s was, was giving us a narrative, a very sympathetic narrative, presented from a Jewish-Israeli perspective of what it's like what, what, it, what happened to Jews in Europe, for example, how, why these guys are in their house in Haifa after all. It's not just because they're, they're, they're monsters, it's because they were also, they were removed and suffered incredibly in Europe and so forth. So the, and, and yet he's Palestine's most revolutionary novelist. So I think it's incredible the way in which literature does have a capacity to, to help people think through these things. The, the remarkable thing is that, is that, as I said, Hassan Kanafani was killed by the Israelis in a car bomb. So that's also worth pondering. Why would they want to kill a man like that? Um, you spoke about uh, the Museum of Tolerance locating a particular great universal ideal specifically in relation to one people and their experience and that that was at the symbolic level and at the same time at the physical level the museum transforms the wall into something else, something that doesn't exist for those who do not wish it to be a symbol of oppression for others. And I'm just wondering from there if you could comment on the way that perhaps if there, do you see a connection between the proliferation of Holocaust museums across many parts of the world, particularly in the United States, which has always seemed to me to be puzzling because I can understand Holocaust museums existing in Europe, but I find it, while I don't mind, you know, I have no objection to people setting them up but elsewhere, but it's always seemed to me puzzling to me uh, that they're set up in countries in which people were not taken away to camps. But other people, like the American Indians, for example, had a terrible experience at the hands of colonial settlers. I, um, I say this, of course, with, um, in my background, is the fact that my grandparents on my father's side perished in the Holocaust. But I, I think that, for me, it seems that the Holocaust museums have proliferated in, uh, so that the memory of one particular thing is brought to the foreground in the public mind, to the exclusion of all others. Well, that's a a very, very profound question, and I honestly can't do it justice, but maybe we can talk afterwards, because it it really is a a massive and very important question. I mean, just quickly, I'll just say that the the most amazing version of that is, is, in fact, this museum itself, the one I was talking about, because... Here it is with a chance to, I mean, even if it's built in a cemetery, to talk about reconciliation and, and, and all those things that it says it wants to talk about, human dignity and recognizing the other and this stuff. But in fact, what it does is it, is it, it in effect, it's, it wants to rehash yet again. Not the Holocaust, it's actually not about, I don't really, it doesn't even talk about the Holocaust this museum because there's Yad Vashem just you know, nearby. But it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, as I said, a, 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 it's a tr- an attempt to, to reconstruct the complexity of European Jewish history in this sort of monolinear way. But to, I mean, the depth of your question about the proliferation of Holocaust museums around the world—I mean, I think there should be Holocaust museums. There's no, there's no question. The question is, why is it that that that, that act of monstrosity and suffering and trauma and so forth does does sometimes seem to eclipse others, and especially in, in places like the U.S., but more than the U.S. in, in this case, in, in, in Jerusalem as well. 
Um, I don't know. That's something that I think I don't have an answer to the question, unfortunately, not off the top of my head. But I think it's something that we should all think about because I think, I mean, I think all acts of suffering are, are abominable, and that nobody should suffer like what people went, what Jews went through, or, or gypsies, or whoever in, in the Holocaust, or what people in Iraq are going through now, and or, or Africans in the in the period of slavery in the Atlantic, and so forth. I, I think. What, what we really could have used, in fact, is a, is a museum that is genuinely devoted to the question of tolerance, that, wants, that tries to bring all of these, these tr uh, historical moments of trauma and suffering and loss, etc., and, and relate them to each other rather than separate them from each other in this kind of uh, vertical kind of way. I think we have time for one more very quick question. Thank you for letting me sneak in. Thank you, Sari, for your lyrical um, and thoughtful meditation and alerting us to this museum of intolerance, an ultimate, an ultimate edifice into what museums really are about in terms of their problematic histories, in terms of vehicles for colonial settlerism. Indigenous people on this land are still trying to reclaim their human remains from the museums of who used to be the colonial masters of this land. Um, I, I'm, without going into sort of complex elaborations, um, how, like, and also reflecting the kind of conversations we have with each other as cultural producers, as writers, as activists. How do we create politics and poetics of Palestine in public spaces, given that you reflect the idea that Zionism has been rewritten as a universal kind of value? Um, I myself, as well as others in this room, have worked on our own local level for many years. And six years ago this week, a state cultural institution in this city was doing very dirty work in denying the story of Palestine in corrupt episodes of censorship, which they went on to deny publicly in the media. So your language of the denial of denial is very beautiful in reflecting on how cultural institutions in this city do the same job that you are describing. So I want you to talk about creating in public spaces the story of Palestine. Thank you. Uh, again, that's a... That's also... Uh, all, these questions are all... Uh, they're much too profound because I just... Because I don't have the capacity to talk about... to, to do them justice. I'm, I'm sorry about that. But... Um, it seems to me that what, what Palestinians can do is, is what you're doing and what, and what I'm trying to do and what many people are trying to do, which is to, to tell the story, I think, to, to represent ourselves. And it's true that sometimes the public fora are closed to Palestinians. Sometimes it's extraordinarily difficult to get a Palestinian point of view into a mainstream newspaper. But nevertheless, we, you know, we, people, I mean, Palestinians need to persist in, in those acts of representation and have faith in the end that that people around the world understand that once they hear it, they fundamentally understand the Palestinian cause. It's very, it's very, uh, once people understand what, what the people of Palestine have been through and are going through right now, 
it's it's almost impossible to deny that that level of suffering and, to, and to, for people to close their eyes to it. So then, it really is a matter of being able to tell the story and and to talk to audiences such as yourselves and others. So I think all we can do is is just keep telling the story, and uh, that that by itself will I think help towards uh, achieving a, a just peace because bringing the narrative out from the underground where it's been buried for too long and bringing it to the light of day is, is an important feature of, um, of trying to achieve, uh, in the genuine sense this time, balance in, in the world. I'd just like to close with, on behalf of Sydney University, everyone here tonight to thank, thanks, Sari, for a wonderful evening and to say he'll be signing copies of his bloody brilliant book outside now. So thank you all for coming. Thank you.